This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shahna Saqani, and today I'm in conversation with Farah Banu Atarnikar about her brand new book, Intersectionality in Muslim South Asian American Middle Class, Lifestyle Consumption Beyond Halal and Hijab, published in 2021 with Lexington Books. In the book, Turnikar theorizes the everyday consumption of South Asian Muslim American women through case studies of their food, clothing, and social media presence. Through feminist intersectional and sociology of consumption theories, she provides excellent insights into the nuanced ways that these women negotiate their gendered, classed, racial, and religious identities. Far from being simply a book about the clothing styles, dietary habits and preferences, and social media presence of Muslim American women of South Asian backgrounds, it's an excellent exploration of the ways that this group of American women maintain, form, and reinvent new identities through consumption while maintaining and renegotiating inherited ethno-religious traditions. Farah Turnikar is an associate professor of sociology and director of gender and women's studies at Lemoyne College. She holds a master's in religious studies and a PhD in sociology. Her publications include Feeding the Muslim South Asian Immigrant Family in Feminist Food Studies, Constructing the Halal Kitchen in the American Diaspora, and Hijab and the Abrahamic Traditions in Sociology Campus. Her publications Ethical Consumption and Modest Fashion is forthcoming in Fashion Studies Journal in Spring 2022, and The Changing Face of Arranged Marriage in real life and online in the Muslim diaspora in the politics of tradition, resistance, and change forthcoming summer 2022. In our interview today, we discussed the, the main contributions and findings of her book, Intersectionality in the Muslim South Asian American Middle Class, Lifestyle Consumption Beyond Halal and Hijab, the methods, the author's choice to focus on upper-class middle-class South upper-middle-class-South Asian American women, her respondents' complex ideas of hijab, modesty, and halal consumption of food and their presence on and consumption of social media. This here is my interview with Farah Turnikar. So hi, Farah. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to talk with me about your new book, Intersectionality in the Muslim South Asian American Middle Class, Lifestyle Consumption Beyond Halal and Hijab. Uh, I had a lot of fun reading it. And as a South Asian American Muslim woman, Sama, uh, I really, really appreciated it. Uh, I really appreciate that this exists. So thank you for your work on this. You're um, very welcome. Absolutely. We have a tradition on the podcast to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, their intellectual journeys, how you got involved into women's and gender studies in South Asian American, how you became interested in South, South Asian American women and other related interests of yours. Sure. Um, so in terms of my intellectual journey, I would say it really begins right after I, my bachelor's degree is in English and I did a master's degree in religious studies. And so I was always interested in women in religion and specifically Islam, 
that was my academic area of interest when I was doing my master's degree before I went into sociology. And um, obviously, I also, you know, identify as Muslim American. And so um, when I had gotten into graduate school, you know, initially, I was looking at, you know, marriage patterns, actually, um, uh, both in terms of how people get married and who they marry among South Asian immigrants in Chicago. But I was always interested in gender as well. And so in graduate school, I really focused on gender as well as religion as important aspects of identity for um, uh, South Asian immigrants. And so it's kind of tracing that, you know, thinking about that I come from religious studies into sociology and then thinking about my intellectual, you know, journey. Um, you know, my first couple of publications out of grad school were actually on modesty norms. Um, I, you know, thinking about hijab in the Abrahamic traditions. And then I, you know, and then also thinking about marriage and dating and that kind of intersection of religion and immigrant identity and gender has always been really central to that. And then as I developed as a sociologist, I became more interested in consumption and gender. And then my, you know, and so I moved a little bit away from thinking about hijab and modesty norms in terms of thinking about consumption more broadly, including food, as well as clothing. And that's really what this book culminates is these multiple interests that I've had, you know, how I can use, you know, the, le the sociological lens to really think about complicating religious identity for Muslim women through their um, consumption practices. And so I've always been interested in modesty and how that manifests in, in different ways when we think about class, gender, uh, religious ideologies, interpretations, and then, um, and then broadly in terms of thinking about this in terms of consumption. So so now I'm, you know, firmly grounded in, um, you know, thinking about this as a sociologist, but, you know, my religious studies um, understanding of thinking about immigrant Muslims and particularly Muslim women have, you know, shaped this path that I've been on in terms of my intellectual journey. Absolutely. I'm especially interested in the York on marriage, uh, marriage patterns and dating among Muslims. Because um, as you know, I, as I was just telling you, I'm interested in uh, Muslim women's marriage to non-Muslims. And so I can't wait to read York on that. So I'm also interested in, in the methods, um, in your methods uh, for the research uh, that this book is based on how many women did you talk to? How did you select these women? Um, it take, where exactly it takes place? Uh, you also, I think I mentioned, um, or, or you talk about a Pakistani Australian and a Palestinian American influencers uh, and Instagrammers as well in, in the chapter on social media. So if you could just tell us a little bit more about the methods and... Sure. So, um, you know, this, me, I was gathering um, data from 2016 to 2018. I really started this project in 2015. And so the book is based on interviews with over 49 uh, South Asian Muslim American women. And, and in the book, I use the acronym SAMA, which actually was um, coined by Marcia Hermanson and Marut Khan. And so that's where that term comes from, because their research on Muslim girls is also on SAMA. Um, uh, that population. Um, and so, um, but how I got access and who, who I decided to interview, you know, I, I did do my graduate work in Chicago, so I already had access to networks. And so I really use what we call snowball interviewing, right? Having a few key um, informants and in different communities and then building off of that. So my dissertation research, um, you know, was building off of a Pew project on immigration and religion in Chicago. So I already had some key um, contacts, uh, both in the Muslim community, as well as 
you know, at Islamic schools and as well as being South Asian Muslim myself, of course, I also had um, other um, networks because of my, my own identity. And so that's how I gained access, you know, was through both formal networks, through schools and mosques um, and, and community centers, but also my own networks. Um, and, you know, yeah. And as I said, I did interviews, in-depth interviews, and the interviews took place and and mosques and school, Muslim schools, as well as um, women's houses. I always gave them a choice if they wanted to be interviewed in a public space. Um, I did some interviews in restaurants or they'd rather be interviewed at their homes. Um, and so, yeah, so I focused on South Asian Muslim American um, women um, and I did interviews primarily. And in the chapter that focuses on social media, you know, I looked at, you know, Instagram as well as a few blogs. And in terms of the Instagrammers, the influencers, the Palestinian and Pakistani influencer, the reason I chose to look at those in particular was because um, Sama women's uh, consumption practices are not only shaped by the influences, right, in the diaspora and like the immigrant communities in Chicago, but I, um, what the research showed me is that their consumption practices, what they buy, what they wear is also influenced by global trends as well as these global influencers. And especially and when we're looking at, you know, um, accounts on Instagram um, and, that, you know, whoever does this research in the future will probably be looking at TikTok as well, right? These global trends also shape consumption practices um, in terms of thinking about clothing, um, as well as specifically modesty norms or hijab, or when we get into some of the specific South Asian wardrobe aspects, salvar kameezas and langas and things like that. So, so that's how I ended up also including um, a Pakistani influencer as well as a Palestinian influencer. Yeah, absolutely. In, in other words, it's both their own specific North American contexts that are shaping these trends, but also more global trends. And so therefore, um, their Muslimness, their Muslim identity becomes uh, relevant no matter where they are as well. Yeah, exactly. and I really enjoy that. I mean, I love social media. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And so I, I, and I follow these trends and it's always fascinating to see uh, what, these, what the new trends and the patterns are. Um, before we get into the content of the book, uh, can you tell us what, oh, I was going to also ask, why upper middle class South Asian American women? And yeah. Um, and, yeah. That's a great question. Well, by, by the time I had started doing the interviews, you know, I had already had access to a particular middle class, right? Um, and so because of the way, if you look at the history of South Asian um, immigrants in Chicago, even though there's, you know, there's different waves of immigrants, in particular, the immigrants that helped set up a lot of the mosques and community centers by the late 90s and early 2000s that were largely, you know, middle class in terms of South Asians, right? But I also, you know, I also have to um, add the disclaimer that obviously this study does not represent all Muslims, does not represent all South Asian Muslims, you know, but when I was looking at how South Asian Muslim communities developed, the immigrant Muslim communities in Chicago, which is different than how African American Muslim communities developed in Chicago, you know, there there were largely middle class populations that had been contributing to how the schools and the mosques were set up. Second reason why it ended up being um, upper middle class is because I had um, already started looking at some of the important um, 
themes in the research in terms of co the consumption of modesty, um, aspects of clothing, specifically hijab. And we had already seen this kind of rise of couture modesty, you know, thinking about like um, a, a hot hijab and, you know, these important sites of commerce. And so these things kind of conflated. And we saw that at that time I was doing my research, there was a large community that was um, upper middle class of Muslims that were very visible, right? And so I have to say that, of course, there are many other Muslim communities in Chicago, and it's important to recognize that the African American Muslim community, as well as the Arab Muslim community in Chicago, is very, very um, um, large as well. But I was looking specifically um, interested in South Asian Muslim identity, and so that's how it ended up being um, middle class. I didn't know that it was. I think you mentioned something about ten percent of South Asian American uh, South Asian Americans are live in poverty. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, so that's why I always say that this is, doesn't represent everybody, right? We have to look at, we also have to look at refugees. We have to look at the South Asian immigrants that, um, that immigrated after 1980, right? Not all of them achieve this, you know, this uh, stereotype of the model minority as well. Because most of your participants are, um, they, they're children of immigrants or immigrants, and they've cut, they came in the 1960, with the 1960s and between 1960 exactly. and 1980 trends. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. So they're children of that generation mm -hmm. that immigrated between 1965 and 1980. Got it. Yeah. Um, so now before we get into the content of the book, can you tell us what some of the main arguments that you raise in the book are, what you believe the book's primary contributions might be? Sure. Um, I, I think that one of the key um, themes of the book is that I'm trying to bring religion more uh, clearly into the frame of intersectionality, right? Because I do use that um, that frame to talk about identity for Muslim women. And in, in sociology, a lot of the studies have, you know, centralized race, class, gender, and sexuality in terms of using an intersectional framework. And though I am aware that there are several other studies that also look at religion, um, part of what I was doing is trying to make religion more central in an intersectional analysis. Um, the second important um, theme that I was also addressing, um, and I know there's other scholars in religious studies that are, have done this or are doing it, but also challenging the reductionist and often essentialist understanding of Muslim women, right, and equating this with the symbol of hijab, right, because I don't necessarily just talk about hijab. I actually talk about how when, if we really want to talk about um, Muslim women in identity or Muslim women in modesty in particular, we really do need to go beyond hijab, right, because that is very much an overused symbol in representing Muslim women. And then, um, and then thirdly, even when we talk about hijab and Muslim women, you know, um, acknowledging that there are, you know, large percentages and large numbers of Muslim women who don't wear hijab that still maintain modesty norms. And modesty is not nego negotiated just, um, just by if you cover your hair, you don't cover your hair, right? These negotiations are made by choices around um, ornaments, jewelry, types of scarves, makeup, labels, you know, and so it's a lot more complicated than reducing the idea of if you if Muslim women adhere to modesty norms, if they wear hijab or don't wear hijab, right? There's a much more complicated and larger discussion there. Yeah, and we get a lot of that com complexity uh, from these women. You've got participants who will say things like, uh, yeah, no, I don't wear makeup. I think that that's immodest or I wear, I don't wear, I, I forget if jeans was one of them, but like wearing, you know, what kind, how, how loose their pants are and things, even if they don't wear the hijab or some of them might say, I show my arms, but nothing else. And so the complexity, I enjoyed that uh, complexity and I, I appreciate that it's like going beyond this very, a very one specific uh, notion of what makes, uh, what modesty looks like for Muslim women. 
Um, and then what are some of the theories that inform or, or other important concepts that, in, uh, that inform this research? So you talk, of course, about transnational, fem uh, transnational feminist theory, consumption theory, for example, and then you also have important terms like triple consciousness and so the social construction of authenticity, which makes perfect sense now that I think about it. But I had I'd never thought about how, you know, authenticity is a social construct as well. And um, so yeah. I'd like to hear some more about this. Sure. I mean, so I already mentioned intersectionality, right? That was key. But I do feel like talking about triple consciousness as well as um, the social construction of authenticity is also really important. So um, the triple consciousness concept, right? I'm building on Du Bois, but there are two other Muslim scholars that have actually already done some work on this. Um, Sahir Salaud, who is um, a South Asian sociologist of uh, race and religion, and, say, um, and also a new scholar, Inash Islam, who also uses Du Bois. And so um, uh, Inash's most recent work actually looks at how Du Bois is an important way for us to think about um, theorizing about Muslims, Americans in terms of a double consciousness, you know, and so I'm really building on their work when I use this idea of triple consciousness to talk about Muslim American women. And so I'm building on a fairly new um, theoretical framework that's coming out of sociology of race and religion by these um, two other scholars that are are also doing work on Muslim um, Muslims in America. Um, Sahir Salod's work of Forever Suspect looks at the racialization of American Muslims um, after 9-11, and Inash Islam's actual new work is look, gonna be looking at devailing, and what does it mean when Muslim women take off hijab? And she also uses the framework of double consciousness in Du Bois. And so, um, so that's where I'm building on, you know, a newer framework there. And then lastly, um, thinking about the social construction of authenticity, right? Um, as a sociologist um, uh, coming out of consumption studies, you know, we grapple with these ideas of what is ethnic and what is authentic. And a lot of this debate in sociology of authenticity in terms of consumption has actually come out of food studies. And um, this idea of, you know, who's cooking authentic food, what does it mean, you know, to be authentic in terms of consumption patterns. And then we like, uh, when we apply that not just to food, but to clothing, right, then we get into these questions of like, what, what is Muslim authenticity, you know, what is uh, authentic in terms of identity, you know, and how often um, what you wear and what you eat can be markers of authenticity mm -hmm. in terms of both ethnic identity as, as well as religious identity. So this idea that, you know, um, you know, is your clothing authentic? Is your identity authentic? How does that come through to what you eat or what you wear? And how often these are indicators that not only we use to signal to people outside of our um, um, Muslim or South Asian communities, but also inside, right? And so how we signal that to other Muslims within the community by how we dress, you know, if we maintain modesty practices, if we eat halal food. Um, but why I say it's an why it's a social construct though is because um, how we define authenticity is always changing, right? It's fluid, and so what might seem like authentic Muslim practices in one context might not seem authentic in another context, right? And so when we apply that to modesty and even hijab, you know, how hijab is worn or if hijab is worn at all, right? Um, I think that is something that can be questioned and is often changing and depending on context um, is often defined very differently. So uh, speaking of, and this is related to authenticity as well, but um, my favorite thing in the world, uh, ironically speaking, is patriarchy. And it comes up a lot in, in, in the book, as such as in how patriarchal norms shape your respondents' consumption habits. And with the one exception, <laughs> 
apparently of the woman whose husband cooks right you know right. I, I think you mentioned that in that was the only exception right, right. Um, it was only it was always necessarily the women who are cooking for their families and carrying the mental load of remembering everyone's eating preferences and needs and allergies maybe and so on but a part of your argument and i found this really interesting was that these women connect their cooking choices like so if, if, as gendered as they are to maintaining a cultural connection to a you know quote unquote a home um, if they're first-generation Americans and, and then proving themselves authentically Desi, um, or if second or third-generation uh, Americans. So I'd love to hear more about, I mean, I'm, I'm specifically interested in patriarchy here, but I'd love to, in, to hear some more about your argument that for these women, this, this is an active choice, this is a conscious choice to, to be the ones cooking, um, that this is a gendered pattern, but that there's some, um, there's some theor- there are some theories that you're looking at, there's something important that's going on here. Yeah, and so um, I think what we're seeing is that it's a choice, um, first of all, because we are talking about middle class and upper class women. So, right, there's a choice because um, m- uh, many of these women talked about how they outsourced cleaning the house and they had housekeepers. And we can kind of link that to some of the patterns back home, right, in India and Pakistan, where you will often have somebody, because the wages that are paid are so low, even mm-hmm. beyond middle class, you know, families um you know, in India and Pakistan have, you know, historically had people who've helped with housekeeping. But in the United States, of course, that's much more expensive. So not everybody pays somebody to clean their house. But so, you know, the majority of these women actually did have somebody that they were hiring to take care, help take care of the house, but they chose to keep the control over you know, feeding the family, which is linked to sociological research about, you know, um, how uh, women are still socialized to take care of cooking and feeding the family is part of gendered labor. However, it's also a choice to feed the family, but not necessarily take care of the cleaning, right? And so I, I link that to this idea of, you know, um, a gendered understandings of what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be, a, you know, um, a Desi woman, a South Asian woman? What does it mean to be a Muslim woman? You know, how is that linked to gender ideologies that are passed on from generation to generation? And often, you know, taking care of the family, feeding the family is a way that Muslim women are often socialized to continue to do that, you know? And obviously not all Muslim women are cooking from scratch or feeding the family and doing the groceries. But in this particular, um, in my particular study, um, all, yeah, all the women except for one talked about how she did the majority of the cooking or, you know, or at least the picking up the groceries or organizing what the children were going to eat on a regular basis. And so it's very gendered, but it's also connected to, you know, some options that choices that these women are making within within a patriarchal family structure. I'm still not clear on why, why it is that they, um, they'll hire help for, for cleaning I'm still not sure on what the sociological reasons might be behind that, because that's a really, really fascinating observation that they're willing to cook, but the cleaning. Well, think about, yeah, well, think about the gender ideologies about how cooking is like associated with um, care work, right? So in particular, food is care work in a different way than cleaning is, right? So cleaning is backstage, it's it's totally invisible and it's managerial, right? Where oh, cooking, right, right? Cooking is seen as care work and this type of work that's often associated with being nurturing, right? And so that's where the gender ideology comes out, right? So as, as mothers or as wives, they're, you know, they're um, really engaging in care work in a particular way by feeding the family, feeding their spouses, feeding their children. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Yeah, and that's, and that's linked to Marge Duvall, um, who's a sociologist uh, of gender, um, her early work in the, um, on feeding the family. And so um, yeah. that's where that comes out of sociological theory. So let's talk about clothing now. What was your respondents' wardrobe like? Um, where do they get their South Asian clothing from? Uh, what does it tell us about how they negotiate their identity as South Asian American women? Sure. So, um, you know, in particular, you know, obviously one of the things I talk about in this book is that South Asian middle, uh, Muslim South Asian middle class women, you know, often have two wardrobes, right? And so these bicultural wardrobes often lead to, you know, manifesting in multiple closets, like literally, right? So you have your Western clothes that you wear to work, and then you have your desi clothes, which often intersect with, you know, being modest if you're wearing them at the mosque, Ramadan, you know, for Eid dinners and things like that. And where they, where these um, wardrobes came from were, were really very, you know, so some women talked about how, you know, they still bought clothes on Devon Avenue in Chicago, right? Other women talked about how their uh, mothers would go back and forth to Pakistan, you know, if they were um, purchasing items from boutiques in Lahore or Islamabad or Karachi. Other women talked about ordering clothes online. Some women talked about relatives back in Michigan and Dearborn, where there's a large Muslim community. So what I found is that there was actually multiple ways that women put together how they were able to access um, what they felt they needed to have an eth ethno-religious wardrobe that helped maintain their identities, um, depending on what their relationship it was in, this, in the Muslim community as well as the South Asian community, right? Because what was what's acceptable to wear to an Eid dinner at somebody's home is different than what's acceptable to wear to, you know, eat prayer at the mosque, you know. Um, but yeah, so I found that. And then, of course, lastly, online sites, right? And so they, you know, they introduced me to, um, you know, the website Hot Hijab, where, where, you know, Muslim women also order hijabs as well as other modest attire, modest dresses and things like that. So they also spoke about online sites playing an increasing role in terms of getting access to both um, what they considered modest uh modest fashion as well as South Asian um, outfits from, you know, from Salvar Camises to Langas. Yeah. And the number of times that I've worn the wrong outfit to, <laughs> to an event. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. And, it, and it, I think it becomes complicated when you, you, you know, we acknowledge that these um, Indian Pakistani, and also, of course, we can um, uh, apply this to Bangladeshi and other um, Afghani and South Asian Muslim women, is that there is this intersection of religious identity, right, with ethnic and cultural identity in wardrobes. And the way that South Asian and Muslim American immigrant women maintain identity, wardrobe is actually a big part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Having the right silver kameez or langa to wear to a wedding or an Eid dinner or, you know, um, you know, the baby's first birthday, you know, all those kinds right. of rituals, you know, where there's cultural norms as well as religious norms that are being maintained. Right, of course. I was also interested in their ideas. Uh, they're very complicated and complex ideas of the hijab. And with a very important caveat, you classify their ideas of hijab as conservative and moderate and liberal. Uh, what do these terms mean in the context of the hijab for your respondents. Sure. Um, so first of all, after I completed like gathering my data and started transcribing in 2019, I actually came back to this typology of like conservative, modern, and liberal, um, which is largely from my sociological training to kind of further complicate it, you know, after I was actually really done 
um, doing the writing, because though I addressed it in the book as a sociologist, you know, I acknowledge that um, the respondents did not call themselves, right, conservative, mm -hmm. moderate, or liberal. Right. And I also realized that it's problematic to, to simplify that as well, because somebody who wears hijab is not necessarily more conservative than somebody who doesn't wear hijab, right? So right. I also want to say right. that, you know, so when I, you know, when I was thinking about these categories, I, you know, I was thinking, you know, okay, how can I describe, you know, when somebody is perceived as wearing hijab, they are assumed to be conservative, right? When somebody is perceived to not be wearing hijab, people just assume that they're liberal, right? So understanding that this is how um, young Muslim women are often perceived often by not only by non-Muslims, but as well as by Muslims, you know, within the community. So, you know, so conservative was often attached to the Muslim women who wear hijab. Liberal was often attached to the Muslim women who didn't adhere to any not modesty norms at all. And then moderate was often attached to the Muslim women who didn't wear hijab, but still chose to wear loose clothing, nothing revealing, you know, not wearing sleeveless, not wearing, you know, anything short. Um, but, you know, as I said, I want to stipulate that Sama women who would, uh, who appear moderate uh, might, you know, not wear hijab, but they might still be ad adhering to all religious rituals, such as praying five times a day, such as fasting, such as abstaining from alcohol, right? And I think, you know, those assumptions uh, can, you know, can sometimes really be problematic. And, um, and you know, even like uh, during my ethnography, when I was just doing observations, you know, from the time I did my dissertation to collecting data on this book, um, the idea that, you know, Muslim women who wear hijab are, uh, are more practicing than Muslim women who don't when it comes to these other rituals like prayer or fasting, I think is, you know, also problematic. And we see that play out in Muslim student associations on all college campuses, right? The assumptions that outsiders as well as insiders make about um, Muslim women's practices. Yeah, of course, a number of times I get told stuff like, um, I, know, I, I know I have this Muslim friend, uh, she's very liberal. No, she's very, she wears a hijab, but she's very progressive. And I'm like, well, for, as, a, as somebody who studies these people, <laughs> it's not necessarily, uh, there's no contradiction here. The, the word exactly, exactly. And I think, yeah, and I think that's a really important point to make is that um, often Muslim women are judged by how they dress. And then therefore, you know, there's these uh, expectations that are often moralized in terms of how, you know, how they're dressing and, you know, hijab or not hijab is often categories that Muslim women are um, kind of broken into. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. No, thank you for all of that. Thank you for um, unpacking those uh, complexities. And I also very much enjoyed the chapter on social media and consumption. Um, how does social media help us better understand Sama's lifestyle, their consumption choices, uh, maybe even politics, since uh, the blogs that you survey here, they cover quite a range of topics, including politics and colorism and sizeism and, and so on. 
really, yeah. really powerful stuff. Oh, I know. And, uh, and I, I'm going to be looking more at that in the future. And I'll talk about that in a bit. But yeah, I mean, I think social media is a really important um, place that we can study any marginalized community, right? And thinking about Muslim women or South Asian women, you know, social media is often a place where marginalized women can uh, construct and often reconstruct their religious and ethnic identities. And so we can see that play out in these blogs as well as on Instagram and even, uh, you know, we, I could have even looked at Twitter. But um, I think in particular, when we were looking at social media for, um, you know, marginalized communities like Muslim women or South Asian women, and obviously I'm looking at that overlap, um, you know, the, the, what, what is interesting about fashion blogs as well as um, lifestyle blogs and Instagram, it's so visual, right? So when we're looking at their choices around clothing or food, they're all coded with multiple statuses. And they tell us something about, you know, um, they're coded with social meaning around religion, race, class, gender, and of course, politics, and then, um, and then how they're represented, right, and then the, the often the models that they choose to represent fashion, um, I think are really, uh, we really have to kind of think about that in terms of, you know, how sometimes they're reinforcing hegemonic notions and dominant beauty mm -hmm. standards. And that's where I think the discussions on colorism and sizeism come up, right. So when we're thinking about modest fashion, and, um, you know, and especially when modest fashion really first took off, which was more than five years ago, you know, thinking about the early, um, the early influencers in terms of modest fashion, you know, uh, it makes us, you, you can really see the visual representation, of, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of ways that they reinforce Western beauty ideals, right? And so that's why I think when we're looking deeper into some of the blogs, we see them, um, these bloggers addressing colorism as well as sizeism. And I think it's really important to challenge um, how uh, racial supremacy and particularly white supremacy and white colonial beauty standards have shaped even Muslim as well as South Asian understandings of beauty in terms of modest fashion. And then um, lastly, you brought up politics, right? And so also when you look closely, especially at the modest um, bloggers, you also see how um, politics um, connected to both uh, Palestine as well as Black Lives Matter permeates mm -hmm. in terms of how they represent themselves and how they also show solidarity with these social movements, and especially when I was you know, finishing up my media analysis, um, you know, uh, you know, soon after George Floyd's murder and the solidarity that we saw with uh, both Muslim bloggers, as well as South Asian bloggers in terms of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, absolutely. I So I love ethnographies. And I'm always interested to hear if there's anything that you found important, but you weren't able to include it uh, in this book um, that you'd like to share with us. Sure. I mean, one of the things I wish I had done is I wish I had uh, put a little bit more in about the politics surrounding doing mm -hmm. interviews right after Donald Trump became president, right? Because I was, you know, because I was sticking to this kind of sociological framework of consumption and, you know, food, then clothing and then media, um, even though you could see, right? I mean, it's clear, you, I mean, you just read the book and you can kind of see how some of these themes mm -hmm. came up. And I do mention um, that I was doing interviews while Trump was president in the introduction. Um, I wish I had shared more of the interviews, um, interview data about those conversations around Trump becoming president. Um, because, you know, one participant spoke about wanting to move into a different neighborhood after Trump became president because she realized how conservative 
her um, neighborhood was when it came to race specifically. Um, another woman spoke about, you know, feeling surveillance, uh, more surveilled at the airport after Trump became president because she wore hijab and she felt the rise of xenophobia under his presidency, you know. And so, um, you know, so I wish I had spent a little bit more time um, sharing um, some of the portions of interviews that got into the politics around that. Um, and of course, you know, I acknowledge that Islamophobia had already existed before 2016, but many of the women I interviewed expressed their anxiety around a heightened concern of Islamophobia once Trump was elected. And, you know, a lot of them talked about, you know, the day after the election and, you know, um, you know the, the fear that they often had for their children, people in their communities, and their awareness of, you know, um, the racism that had uh, really come to the surface during his presidency. Well, I would hope that you would still publish those, that data. I remember doing my, when I was doing my dissertation research, uh, one of my committee members highly recommended that I incorporate politics in there somehow, because I was also dealing, I was also talking to uh, Muslims in, this was in, in, in Texas. Um, and it was election season, it was 2016. And it was just sort of a, it was in the background in every answer they gave. And, and I could tell that their answers, even, even if they weren't very conscious of it, or they, were, they weren't explicit about it, their responses were very, very much, um, you know, sort, sort of shaped by what was happening politically. And so I think that is such an important point to be made uh, about any kind of research on Muslims in America, but especially during, uh, you know, at, at a moment when xenophobia is as heightened as it was or as it is uh, now post-2016. So I look forward to that research, actually. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I have already, I have one article in the works, uh, the interview data that I haven't published. And I, you know, I have at least uh, yeah, a second project coming out of this. And so, um, um, yeah, there's so much more to do mm -hmm. thinking about, um, you know, what's happened in the last, what, six years, as well as thinking about how um, consumption patterns are often a way to think about, you know, think about how religion and politics um, shape what's going on. Um, yeah, and then of course, you know, in the end, thinking about intersectionality as encompassing religion and politics, um, how they shape understanding what's going on specifically for Muslim women in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Six years ago. Oh my God, that was six whole years ago. Well, I mean, not entirely. <laughs> almost, you know, almost. Like it's 2020. It's almost 2022. Yeah, it's almost 2022. Whoa. Yeah. And did you face any challenges at all while when conducting this research? Um, you know, I think the biggest challenge was, you know, that I did want to get um, an array. I wanted to get some diversity in terms of the modesty norms. Like that was what, you know, because that's one of the things I was really interested in is I wanted to make sure that I properly had some a range of women in terms of, you know, wearing hijab, not wearing hijab. You know, some of the interviewees I talked about in the chapter on clothing talk about, you know, taking off hijab, right? And and we often in sociology, at least we talk about that de-hijabing, right? That they wore hijab and then they no longer wore hijab. So I wanted to make sure I interviewed women who not, you know, because I obviously talk about this project is beyond hijab. So, you know, I'm having in-depth conversations with women who never wore hijab and maybe talking to women who also wore hijab but no longer did and really explaining that this is, as you said, a really complicated, it complicates how we think about modesty. And I wanted that range. Um, and so 
initially, you know, what happens is you interview one Muslim woman who doesn't wear hijab, and then you start interviewing her network, and the majority might not wear hijab, right? You you interview one Muslim woman who wears hijab, you know, and then you go, do snowballing, and m the majority wears hijab. So I wanted to kind of get that mix, right? So I could talk about how even though not everyone is not wearing hijab or wearing hijab, there is definitely and a lot of a lot of diversity in how they interpret hijab and also um, beyond hair covering, right? I think that was really important. As you, as you point out, the discussions they have about how tight their clothing is, what's appropriate in terms of jewelry, makeup, accessories, um, you know, uh, things like that. Oh, absolutely. And is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we close? Um, yeah, so my, I guess my future project, kind of building on some of this research, you know, um, my next project is going to be looking more closely at how colorism and sizeism shape modest fashion, but also engaging, as you alluded to earlier, um, transnational um, frame, feminist frameworks to kind of address that. And how when I get actually getting beyond you American-based intersectionality as a framework, when you start to have intersectionality in conversation with transnational feminism, you start to also really engage in white settler colonialism. And of course, if we're going to talk about... Um, uh, colorism within the Muslim community, specifically thinking about South Asian Muslims, uh, Pakistani, or even, you know, looking at um, Arab American Muslims, you have to engage in white settler colonialism to kind of understand how, you know, where did colorism come from in terms of British colonialism to India and Pakistan to the United States. And so uh, bringing those frameworks in, because I did not, I don't address white settler colonialism in this project, you know, and when I continue to look at modest fashion, um, not just in terms of the US, but globally, I think that's a really important part of it. And so the two new pieces I want to add to adding um, to my future work on looking at modest fashion is white settler colonialism, and as well as then entering that discussion through a new the new discipline of fat studies, because that's where the, the, a lot of the really um, uh, emerging scholarship on sizeism is actually coming out of fat studies, which emerged outside of women's studies. And so I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, acknowledging that there's been a lot of really important good work done on Muslim American women, um, specifically thinking about Suad Kabir's work on um, a black Muslim uh, women in Chicago and Raina Lewis's work on uh, modest fashion and the emerging work that Inash Islam is working on. But, you know, but, you know, as I continue to look at modest fashion, I really want to bring in that kind of global framework of um, white settler colonialism with transnational feminist theory to, um, you know, really kind of push this work more forward and um, even complicate it even more so when we think about Muslim women and their choices that they make around modest fashion. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to be um, that before we end, we like to ask our authors to tell us uh, about what, what new projects they're working on that we can look forward to in the, new, in the near future. But I, I guess you sort of just answered that, that you'd like to yeah. work on that project. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and I do pop, yeah. And then, I mean, and then just getting back to your super earlier question about my early work on marriage and dating, I do have um, a chapter coming out and um, in a volume on um, on uh, marriage, uh, edited by Peter Burka, and um, that is um, called The Changing Face of Arranged Marriages in the Muslim South Asian Diaspora. And that looks at um, arranged marriages, semi-arranged marriages, and also how online, um, online sites such as shadi.com play a role in that. And then um, and building on some of the earlier research that I have done on interracial and interfaith uh, marriage and dating as well. Oh, that is just so exciting. <laughs> 
<laughs> I had my, my, my master's thesis was actually on this question of, uh, of, of how Muslims get married and some <laughs> common dating and marriage patterns. And um, I've participated in interviews with uh, scholars who are also working on online dating and how, you know, what yeah. those experiences are like. And so this is just so fascinating. And then we have websites where a lot of the Muslim websites and, and, and not just Muslim ones, but also something like shadi.com will have um, there's a question that says, you, uh, what do you call it, when it's uh, your parent or a guardian is actually setting this profile up for their, you know, child or a sibling. And I'm like, mm. so there's all of that, like that, there's actually that option, the fact that that option exists on some of these dating websites is just yeah. really fascinating. And no, and it is really happening. interesting because the themes around, uh, I think, matchmaking for Muslim women, as well as like thinking about clothing and modest fashion, uh, like those, some of those themes overlap, right? Like colorism is still a big theme, right? Like you're setting up your daughter to have a semi-arranged marriage, or you're filling out, you're filling out some of those online sites, you know, you know, they often ask you, what color is your skin, which when we tell some people that that are outsiders, they're still surprised that even in the diaspora, um, that they're, you know, in Muslim matchmaking or South Asian matchmaking, how colorism is still uh, an issue as well. Um, you know, so a lot of these themes overlap. And when I look back at some of my earlier uh, publications on marriage and dating, um, and now looking at my newer work on Muslims and modesty norms, I'm, you know, seeing how uh, the issues of colorism and fat shaming are actually overarching themes there. And so, yeah, so a, an online dating and online marriage uh, um, options for Muslim women in particular, I think are, are really interesting because on the one hand, they have more agency because they can go in and fill them out. But on the other hand, often parents are still have a role there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's very complicated, you know, in terms of um, how that goes forward. Yeah, no, I was on this, um, I was on this WhatsApp, and I think there's a few of them now, but on this WhatsApp group where a whole bunch of Muslim, uh, it was mostly mothers, mm -hmm. um, and I think it was based, it was like the folks that I, that added me to the group were primarily uh, Muslim women of South Asian backgrounds living in Houston, and so it's like a, a, I'm sure there's a word for it, but it's like a matchmaking platform, and they'll send you a bio data of somebody yeah. with, you know, their uh, phone, their phone number or their, their picture, and uh, so many of them were, you know, you had to get through the mother to get to Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, right. this is, it was, it was, yeah, those are some fun experiences there. Oh, um, I mean, that's what's fascinating, because on the one hand, we have technology, and so, you know, young people have access to the technology themselves to go in and, you know, but then uh, parents are still also engaging and reinforcing mm -hmm. some of the hegemonic norms, especially around gender, right, yeah, um, for absolutely. their daughters. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I'm looking forward to that project uh, or just more of this, more of this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. That is all the questions that I have. And um, again, thank you for the book. I enjoyed it very much and connected and it resonated in many, in many ways as for me as a South Asian uh, Muslim American woman. Thank you right. so much for your time. Absolutely. All right. So that was my discussion with Farah Turnikar about her new book, Intersectionality in the Muslim South Asian American Middle Class. Lifestyle Consumption, Bian Halal and Hijab, published in 2021. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you all have a safe and happy holidays and a fabulous, beautiful new year. Salam.